If you've got your Bibles with you, we're continuing in our series in James, and we're in James chapter 1. We're going to read from uh, chapter 1, verse 9, um, through to verse 18. Just uh, nine verses, but uh, um, they are great verses, but uh, definitely challenging uh, as well this evening. And this is what God's Word says. First, uh, James chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. The brother, in humble circumstances, ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Let's bow our heads, let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for James. We thank you for the words that he has written. Father, we thank you for your word. And again, Father, we pray, make it come alive to us this evening. Perhaps in the in the weariness of uh, the hour this evening, Father, keep us alert, keep us awake. Father, challenge us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Well, I, th- I, think, I think it's fair to say that this book of James is counter-cultural. Uh, it, it, it's a book that turns our conventional human wisdom and ideas and culture upside down. Uh, and, and even in these first few verses, it, it challenges what we prioritize in life. And can I say to you, it's not just counter-cultural for the 21st century, although it absolutely is that, and it is countercultural for our time, but it's countercultural for the first century as well. Because, In fact, arguably, it runs against the grain of general human nature, no matter what time in history you choose. How can we have joy during the trials and hardships of life? That's what we looked at last time. 
And from a natural wisdom point of view, that's not natural. Having joy in hardships is not natural. But James says, or but says James, if we see our trials and our hardships the way God sees them, if we see them as opportunities, we can grow our faith in God. We'll become mature. We'll become complete, says James. In other words, what he's saying is that the way God sees things is often completely different to the way humanity sees them. But when we see things the way God does, we come to understand that our faith in Christ and our ongoing pursuit of Christian maturity is far more important than comfort or ease in this life. But my goodness me, that is hard to do. Is it not? In fact, I want to say to you that I think the only way that we can do it, I think it's what James is saying, is through the gift of God-given wisdom. I think that's actually one of the themes that ties this first section, this first chapter at least, together. It's not, please don't think that, this is not a random collection of thoughts. This is not James throwing down coffee cup um, t-shirt verses one after the other. It's not random. These verses are connected by trials and temptations, by trials and perseverance, by perseverance and joy, and as we'll see tonight, by wisdom. Godly wisdom. So that they then, and we now, can see and understand the world the way God sees it. To have His priorities and to be shaped by eternity rather than just our finite lives. So we're going to have four points uh, tonight. Um, just so you're uh, a little bit more comfortable. Two of them are going to be a bit longer and two of them will be a little bit shorter. Um, and we're going to look at wisdom. And the first thing I want to say to you tonight is that we need wisdom to understand the material world. The material world. Wisdom to understand the material world. If, if we thought that the call to be joyful in the midst of hardships was countercultural, well, James just kicks it up a notch, right? As he talks about the really challenging issue of our wealth. And what he says, what he says, just in case you missed it when I read it, uh, let me paraphrase what James is saying. He's saying, if you are poor, if you're in humble circumstances and you are poor, you should boast in that. You should be proud of that. And if you are rich, you need not to take pride in your money. You actually need to lower yourself and take pride in your lowly position. Now that is totally counter-cultural. It's hard to think of anything that would be more counter-cultural, in fact. Humanity has always been about accumulating as much stuff as possible. That's the general theme. 
The desire for riches was a problem then, and it's very much a problem now. We, we have a whole advertising industry, which is worth many, many billions of dollars, but a whole advertising industry that would very much beg to differ with the statement that James makes. They sell us things that we need, in inverted commas. The fastest car, the latest technology, the biggest house. I mean, you get shampoo and makeup because we're worth it. Just so we're clear, I'm not wearing makeup. I just realized that. I don't know why I've, I'm not sure why I've chosen makeup. I'm absolutely clear. I do not partake of that, and I wouldn't, no matter how rich I was, just so we're clear. But there's the financial planning, the investments, the pensions. Our whole culture is based on what we have, and the more money we have, the more we are winning at life. That's the message. And at, and at the risk, at the risk of banging a drum to the point of annoyance, I say this on all sorts of issues, but it's true. That's our culture outside, right? But what our culture does outside affects what happens inside the church because we don't live in a vacuum. Those things readily affect the church and, and we'll often in the church and in the history of the church, we like those who have money coming to church. Because you see, it brings an air of success. And it gives us the ability to do stuff and we could do more things. And if rich people came, oh, that'd be great. Now you maybe think to yourself, that couldn't happen in Seagate, couldn't happen here. Well, let me tell you whether it has happened in Seagate or not, it's clearly been happening to the people that James is writing to. This is James chapter 2, verse 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it, into chapter 2. Well, he says, If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's be clear, James writes that because that's what's happening. Maybe they didn't say it, but we are tempted to be the same. Really poor people come to our church. Do we welcome the men as equals? Do we see that actually they have some pride in their lowly position? Or do we at best see them as a project? It's challenging. And let me tell you, if it could happen then, it can and will happen now. Because in the eyes of most of humanity, wealth is the key aim for life. Why? Because wealth makes us self-sufficient. We no longer need to rely on anyone. Least of all God. 
give us this day our daily bread. And let's be real, in this room, that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is, is very rarely a prayer that we would make. And genuinely mean it. In that I'm desperate for my daily bread. Because we can provide for ourselves. And being comfortable, being secure, is a life goal. And conversely, and this is a connection here, having no money makes life grindingly difficult. Everything becomes hard. It's a trial. I sat this week, I had the opportunity to go down at Christians Against Poverty conference. And one of the amazing things that they do at that conference is they bring people whose lives have been transformed. It's a, it's, it's a great joy um, to do that. And they also make you dress up in silly things. But this is one of the great things about the conference. And what they say is that when they're in debt, and when they can no longer see a way out, and life is dark, everything is a challenge. Getting out of the house is a challenge. Speaking to people is a challenge. Everything's a trial. It's hard to think positively in the midst of real, genuine financial challenge. But James says, he tells these Christians, and these Christians, many of whom were poor, they were Jewish Christians, almost certainly excluded from the synagogues where they were, excluded from society with no social care provision, poor and struggling. And he says, take pride in your high position. Why would he say that? Well, James 2 verse 5, he says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Anyone, anyone who's been on mission, anywhere in the world, anybody who's really dealt with people who are, who are poor, real significant poverty. They know this is true. They know that it's true. I can speak readily about Haiti. The Christians, many of them, have very little or nothing. But they have been chosen by God to be rich in faith. That's why when we go, we say we get more than we give. Because we see their faith. By the way, they're often full of joy. See, James is turning our culture upside down. And it requires godly wisdom to see it and properly understand it. But in the eyes of God, the poor are in fact rich. They can boast because of their riches in Christ. And the materially rich in this life are lowly. This is deeply disconcerting, by the way, for an affluent Western church, which we are, FYI. But the Bible regularly makes it clear 
that the problem of prosperity is a far greater problem than the problem of poverty. Luke 18, verse 24, you know the story well. Rich man came to Jesus. He spoke with him. Jesus put his finger right on the rich man's issue, of course. And what was really his God. But Jesus, he walked away and Jesus said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. James says the rich man must in effect be humble. He must boast in the fact that spiritually speaking, he is poor and needy and naked. as needy as anyone else and in desperate need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that desperate dependence, you see, is so hard for a rich man who's already dependent on himself. And then to ram home the point of that, that dependence and that security that wealth apparently gives, James borrows from Isaiah 40 the picture and illustration of the withering plant in the scorching heat of the midday sun. You see, wealth gives you the idea of permanence and security. This is Isaiah 40, and, and I was talking with people last night about this. It's incredible. The Bible says that in, in, in terms of a day, right, Humanity is like the dew of the grass, right? That means by the time you've finished your morning latte and the dew is gone, your life is over. Bang! And all your riches and all your wealth and all your hopes and all your ambitions gone. There's no security, no permanence. Like that plant that burns in the heat. You might think it gives you security, but it doesn't. Not from the perspective of God. But in light of all of that, James offers a great promise to the rich and the poor, to all of us. He says in verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. James says we need, second point, we need the wisdom to persevere. James has come full circle in these 12 verses. He started in verse 3 with perseverance and faith, and now we come to verse 12 with perseverance rewarded and a call to have faith to see beyond uh, the immediate reality of our lives. But there is, uh, actually interestingly, and just simply preaching that, and this is why I did a short point on this, but simply leaving that there, I, I recognize the little risk, in at least in my human heart, if not in yours. But since I'm preaching, 
I get the opportunity to, to talk about it. See, if I, if, if I just say to you, and, and when people say to me, that what we need to do is we need to persevere for the crown, I find life can easily actually become a grind. See? And a, and a slow drudgery as we make our way there. As if God is this hard taskmaster, you know, and he's deliberately making life really difficult. And we just have to kind of hold on there like a, like a marathon runner that just has to keep going until we drop. So we get God's stuff and God's prize. Not really interested in God himself. And do you know, I, this week, one of my guilty pleasures, and I spent far too much time doing this, I, I, is I watch cooking competitions, right? I know this makes me sound bad, but I do. I, I watch these cooking competitions like MasterChef and, and the like. Um, and I, I think part of it is I, I try to understand the psyche of somebody who would go on them, right? Uh, there's a certain sort of perverse sort of, why would you put yourself through that? Right, um, and they have these crazy tasks and these time challenges. You know, it, it, it just crazy things. Uh, but one of the things that you notice, they're all gunning for the prize, right? But one of the things you notice is that they bring in guest chefs, and and this week on the particular show was Gordon Ramsay. Although for the purposes of, I'm using it for the purposes of this illustration. But why anybody would want the to like Gordon Ramsay anyway? But what happens is the contestants, you notice, are so enamored with Gordon Ramsay being there and so desiring to, to get his approval that they forget about the, they forget about the big competition. They just want to get his approval because they think he's great. It's, it's, you can see why I, I don't understand it, but it's there. These foodies, as they call themselves. And how much more should that be true of us as Christians? Filled with an appreciation of God, of what God has done for us now. By the way, not someone in the distance, what he's done for us right here, right now. It's not merely a crown as well. It's a crown of eternal life and that we get Jesus Christ himself. That we were dead and blind and pitiful and naked and now we're alive and now we can see and now we're clothed in righteousness and we're called children and we have this amazing hope. And we're loved beyond our comprehension with this fierce, steadfast, eternal love. And you see, when you get that, when you understand, when you meditate on that, well, you can endure all things. Embrace all things. Because nothing compares to having God himself. And the great thing is that we do not do any of it alone. We're empowered, as we saw this morning, by the Holy Spirit. To persevere and to grow in maturity and to be complete. 
Wonderful, you say. Wonderful. That sounds fantastic. Amen. Let's all go home. That's a good place to finish. Except James doesn't finish there, and neither do I. Because James knows that whilst there is this opportunity for growth in the middle of trials, there is also the opportunity for giving up. The opportunity to embrace God and embrace our lowly position, but also the opportunity to blame God when we do not persevere in hardships or when we succumb to our temptations and when we fail. So we need wisdom to understand our own failures, our own nature, and our own temptations. Now note again, by the way, in passing, that James says when we are tempted. I don't know if you noticed that. It's when. It's not if. It's when we are tempted. As if we didn't already know that. I'm sure you did. But it's going to happen. And in the midst, you see, of challenges and temptations that we experience, it is so easy to blame God. God, what are you doing to me? Why is my life not working out? I thought you were good. Or how about uh, the, the midst of, in the midst of temptations uh, and we cry out and we say, God, you made me like this. You, you gave me these urges. This is my nature. And so when I act on it, what, I mean, God, what did you expect? would happen. This is the hand you've dealt me. I'm just playing the hand you've given me. I couldn't possibly do anything about it. God, if you only took away that temptation, if you changed that instinct, when trials come, we blame God. Our health or our wealth has gone. What have you done, God? All of those things, by the way, are as old as humanity itself. Someone said, I, I couldn't find who, but somebody said, to err is human, and to blame God is even more so. In the Garden of Eden, just after the fall, what did Adam say to God? The Lord God called to the man, he said, where are you? Adam said, well, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, and God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then here is man's finest hour. Oh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You see that? See, Adam's defense was not my fault. It was the woman's fault. And if it's not the woman's fault, Actually, if I, actually, to be honest, if I think about it for a moment, God, actually, it's your fault because you put her here with me. So it's actually your fault. I was tempted, God, but it isn't my fault. James is absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. God does not tempt us to commit evil. He does not tempt us. Alec Mochier, the, 
Um, the famous theologian and pastor said, God is of such unmixed goodness in his attitudes and actions that there is no room in motive, will, or deed for that which would bring disaster, great or small, on any of his people. God is not tempted by sin. It has no appeal for him. And hear it loud and clear, says James, the voice of temptation does not come from God. When I was in my late teens, I think I've talked about this before, but when I was in my late teens, it's a very painful time in my life, so it comes back in every now and again. I failed my A-level exam. I didn't fail them, but I might as well have done. And uh, I, I was, again, I was talking about this last night. It was on my mind. I can still remember where I was in my physics multiple choice uh, paper one um, in uh, Belfast. It was a fabulous day. Now, the exam that day, or the test, was the occasion of my failure. But it was not the reason for it. The reason for the failure was entirely mine, right? I didn't work hard enough, and I made some poor choices. And it ended badly in the exam. It wasn't the end of the world, but it, it ended badly in the exam. I can blame many things, but I can't blame the man who wrote the paper for the exam. I can't do that. It's similar. God does test us through trials and hardship. We know that he does that. But God does not tempt us. He does not deliberately set out to make us feel or to encourage us to feel in any way. James says, if we fail the test, we cannot blame God. We have no one to blame but ourselves and our own evil desires. I, I have not fished. I have not gone fishing many times in my life. But I think in verse 13, James has maybe a fishing metaphor when he says, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. And that's the idea of fishing. Stick a nice big juicy worm on a on a hook, stick it in the water, and the fish sees the it sees it, and it can't resist. Oh, excellent! Its desire is for the food, and so it chomps down on the the hook. Bye. Death usually for the fish. King David in the Old Testament stood on the roof of his palace. And he saw the very beautiful and the very naked Bathsheba. And his own evil desire gave birth to sin. He saw her, he wanted her, and he took her. He was enticed. And he committed adultery with her. And when that sin was fully grown, it gave birth to death in a very real sense. Her husband was murdered. Now, David could easily have blamed God. He really could, he, in, in a worldly sense. I, come on, what am I supposed to do? I'm a man, and there's this beautiful woman on the roof. 
God, if you only hadn't, if only you hadn't let me see her. If only you hadn't made her beautiful. But that's not what David says when he's confronted with his sin. Psalm 51 verse 3 says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. She acknowledges it was his own sinful desire. Actually, I was conceived in sin. And he has no choice but to throw himself completely on the mercy of God. We need wisdom to understand ourselves. To understand our own nature and the reality of the temptations. And wisdom to understand the holiness and integrity of God in all situations of life. And then James finishes this little section we've looked at tonight with words of great encouragement that remind us who God is. He provides us with the wisdom to know God. See, in the midst of the temptation, in the midst of the trial, the easiest thing in the world is to be deceived about who God is. That's why he says, don't be deceived. Don't believe things about God that are not true. And here, says James, as a reminder, our God is a giving, generous God. If we ask him for wisdom, for help, he will give us every good, every perfect gift that we need. And says, James, listen, the, the God that we worship, he never changes. There's no, it's not like the shadows moving. He never, ever changes. We studied Exodus, um, and uh, in Exodus chapter 34, you remember God revealed himself to Moses. He, sh- he revealed something of who he was. And what he said was, uh, he is compassionate, and he's gracious, and he's patient, And he's full of this abundant and steadfast love for his people and full of justice and holiness. And he's the same now. He has not changed. For us Christians, he has given us new life through the truth of the gospel planted in our hearts. This life is hard. James knew that. That's why he wrote this. This life is hard. Sometimes it's really hard. But what a hope we have. Hope that through all the trials and all the falls, all the giving in to our sinful nature, hope through all the times we persevere, Hope when we reject temptation. Hope that we can declare with Paul that we have been crucified with Christ. And we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. As the band come back, let's pray.
Uh, dear Father God, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you for how they challenge uh, our cultural assumptions. Uh, Father, help us to not be deceived. Help us in the midst of difficulty to know who you are, to hear that loud and clear, to follow your voice. That you are the good shepherd, that you will lead us home and that we will be with you forever. And we will hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen.